when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey Feelers, and welcome to episode 73 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and alongside me is alternate juror and best friend Aaron. Hello. Why am I an alternate, by the way? Uh, well, because the 12 have already been picked. I'm an alternate, too. So I, I wouldn't yeah. want to be an angry man anyway, so yep. I guess... We were we were the two people that left at the beginning of the movie, right? <laughs> we were unnecessary, <laughs> is what you're saying. Listeners, we do were. not think we are unnecessary. We are very necessary. <laughs> well, tonight we are examining a film considered a classic, but one that has a huge amount of relevance in today's cultural landscape. We're talking about the 1957 directorial debut of Sidney Lumet, 12 Angry Men, starring Henry Fonda, Jack Klugman, Jack Warden, and nine other stellar, sweaty actors. This film has had a special cinematic place in my heart, and it was great to hear that it recently became part of yours as well, Aaron. But we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Uh, First up, man, how are you, first of all? (laughs) And what have you been up to this week? Well, I am doing very, very well. I'm hot again because here in Seattle, we are having a heat wave. It's in the mid-80s uh, here at the end of August. Stop it. Stop your laughter. Stop it right now. Uh, actually, in all seriousness. That's fall for me in Arkansas. <laughs> I've, we've been spend, I've been spending a lot of time uh, this weekend, honestly, just, just praying and you know thinking about uh, friends and family down in, in South Texas and all of the terrible weather that they're they're struggling through right now. So um, I, I hesitate even, I guess, to make jokes about my weather. But um, it is hot, and I'm hoping that it goes away very soon and fall comes back. Before I go any further, i got to ask you, you just said Sidney Lumet. Did you look that up? Because I probably – I did. Okay, so I've been saying it wrong. Yeah, I was origi- I originally was calling him Sidney Lumet. So he's not French. And I made – no, I, I don't know what he is. I, I know that he, <laughs> I know that he achieved an honorary Oscar in 2005. I imagine for this for this film. But yes, as as far as his name pronunciation, I had to look up a couple of different websites, and they confirmed it's Sidney Lumet. Well, listeners, you've learned something most likely here on Feel and Film today, as well as I, because I did not. <laughs> and know Don that. wasn't even here to tell us. Right? <laughs> yeah. We we don't even need our every movie has a lesson guy. We that that teacher guys and you know. <laughs> We can do it ourselves. Okay, so I, Patrick, have just stopped pacing, so I'm a little hype still. I'm trying to come down. Um, I just finished watching the season finale of Game of Thrones. I'm sure many, many of you listeners watched that as well. Is that, is that still on? Yeah, yeah, one more <laughs> season after this, and it's like a couple years away or something, but this has been an incredible little seven-episode season basically they took the final season what would have normally been the storyline for a final season they broke it up into two but they're putting so much production value into this show my one of my first thoughts after watching this was i wish i could have seen this episode and several of this season's episodes in a movie theater like it's that level i mean it's it's better fantasy movie wise than you know half the fantasy movies or more that come out in movie theaters in the last you know decade since Lord of the Rings. So it's it's incredible and mind-blowing and just twists and turns and, and crazy stuff happening. So I, I'm trying to come down so I can get serious and talk about something that is, that is important and, and not just entertaining. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I want to start with this for – or tell you this for this last week. The thing that sticks out to me that I want to mention 
is also a classic movie, kind of like 12 Angry Men. Um, I was able to see last Thursday night, for me, Lawrence of Arabia for the first time. And not only did I finally get to see this film that I have been avoiding for years because of its length, but I got to see it in the best theater that we have in Seattle and in its 70 millimeter recently restored glory. Frankly, I think I did myself a favor (laughs) by sitting through this almost four hour movie in this theater with this presentation, because had I tried to watch this at home, there is no way I would have had the appreciation, the respect that I do for it. And frankly, I might not have even finished it, to be honest, because it can be very slow at times. And it just, it really deserves to be seen on a big screen. And that's, that's tough when we're talking about a film this old, because you're not going to get many opportunities to do that. I'll say that I could not have been more surprised at how much I loved it. I walked out of it and I was more in a place of respect than I was a place of like or enjoyment. And over the next 48 hours, I have thought about this film. I have chewed on it. It has become more and more um, important to me, I think, over over the course of time. And I, I just really think... It is a phenomenal film, and I understand why it's ranked so highly in in many, many best-ever lists. So it's awesome, (laughs) and if you ever have a chance, listeners, to see Lawrence of Arabia in a theater, do not miss that opportunity. Same for you, Patrick. I don't know if you've ever – have you ever seen it? I've never seen it, no. Yeah, and and I don't know that you – I would never actually recommend people even go see this on a small screen. It's it's kind of that that much of a difference – that I just mm-hmm. don't think the epicness this, – this is a movie that very much defined the word epic and the Hollywood epic. And yeah. one of the cool things about seeing it was the lines that were used, the way the cinematography is shot. There's so many moments in this film that I was like, oh, man, they did that in Lord of the Rings. Now, I will say that I think Lord of the Rings does it better, honestly, improved on it. But for its time, this is, I mean, groundbreaking, just incredible stuff. And what's what's neat – is I was looking this up after the fact, I went in not knowing the director, David Lean. This guy actually directed The Bridge on the River Kwai and also Dr. Shivago. So he has a heck of a resume. Like, <laughs> yeah, those are like three of the all-time greatest movies that people would say, you know, and it's just incredible stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's my take. Lawrence of Arabia, I, I give it two thumbs up easily, uh, up there and worth seeing. And, and I definitely think it will probably creep into my top 100 when I, when I redo it the next time. That's great, man. And you mentioned the 70 millimeter restoration that you went to go see at this theater for our listeners. Can you give us a little bit of education about the importance of that at all? I mean, is there significance? Is it, is more, it just bigger? Is it broad stroke? What is it? More screen space, essentially. Okay. It's, it's more, more of the shot, in the screen and in the picture. Um, there was gotcha. a big deal that came out with the hateful eight when Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. shot it in 70 millimeter and everybody was like, why it's, it's, you know, it's in a, it's in an enclosed space. So much of it is just in a house <laughs> or in a, you know, in a barn type area. Um, why would, why do you need that wideness of the shot? But yeah, 
when you see a film in this format and you you see how much you can actually visualize off to the left and the right it's mm-hmm. pretty phenomenal and so for a movie that has the incredible cinematography that this one does and it is stunning i will tell you it was just a, a major enhancement for it um and just ratchets it up even a notch further gotcha i know that dunkirk had a special number of theaters that were that we're showing it in 70 millimeter and I would get questions about well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's like IMAX? Does that mean it's like real big? <laughs> I was actually, as I was talking to people about it, I was saying more to the fact that it's done less digitally. It's it's less about digital and more about the actual film and using a, using that 70 millimeter versus 35, which is what guys like Chris Nolan are, are about. They're about the origin, the, the keeping it kind of old school and using film instead of digital. Yeah. And I would, I would go see, anything in 70 millimeter if given the choice uh over over a digital type print so yeah it it would definitely make for a more um unique movie experience i think what what imax has sort of what imax came to do and the hdx or whatever we're calling the bigger screens i think the 70 millimeter is the next kind of step even though we're kind of going backwards doing you know print versus digital I think that's going to be the next big movie experience that people are going to want to be about. And when you have when you have guys like Nolan that are kind of leading the charge, I think it's worth trying to explore that. Unfortunately, I live in a decently, I mean, not, it's a it's a big, fairly big city, but it's nothing like Seattle or Chicago, and so we don't have a lot of opportunity to get to those seventy millimeter special features. It's, it's sad. Right, though. So, what about you? I guess you weren't watching any classics in seventy millimeter. What did you do this last week? <laughs> Well, I, I have to say I love when we have guests on because they inspire me. And when a guy like Andrew Dice shows up, I always get inspired in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if this was on the air or off, but we were talking about The Flash, and he mentioned the podcast that he's on uh, fairly regularly. The, it's just called The Flash Podcast, and it really centers around the television show, which I'm a big fan of. But he mentioned his his idea for... Uh, the Flashpoint movie that I know that at Comic-Con it was teased that that was really what the 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 Flash movie coming out in 2020 or whenever is going to be centered around is Flashpoint. And this storyline <laughs> made a huge amount of waves in the comics. It was one that I wasn't aware of until you and I actually revisited or got into the comics back in 2011 when the New 52 for DC made its uh, made its way into the into print because it was out of the flashpoint storyline that the new 52 made its made its way into into our world and i'd seen the the dc animated film which is fantastic the flashpoint paradox but i wanted to actually read the comic i'd actually never read it i'd never read the the six issue event series uh there are a bunch of tie-ins that i haven't read yet but i wanted to go back because that inspiration i wanted to read what he was just gushing about on his podcast and it's uh it's written by jeff johns and for jeff johns the flash and green lantern are like his his babies like you don't mess with those guys and when he puts pen to paper regarding either of those characters you better put your seatbelt on because it's going to be a crazy ride and it's going to be a lot of fun it's going to be a well-written story and so Andy Kubert came around, and he was doing the uh, the drawing for for the for the uh, the event. 
and man, it is so good, Aaron. Really? I mean, again, I, I've seen the I've seen the DC adaptation, but there's something about going back to the source material that you get the, I guess I would call it the comic importance of a storyline like this because there have been, I guess you could say, haters of the DCEU and. Anytime there's bad press, you get somebody who says, hey, just go ahead and retcon it with Flashpoint because Flashpoint was essentially a story that became a what if that led into a new timeline, that type of thing. And so that's been sort of the foil for a lot of the, hey, the DCEU is messed up. Let's just use Flashpoint to fix it. And something that something that, that Andrew said on his other podcast was that one, he personally believes the DCEU doesn't need fixing and that Flashpoint wasn't about fixing anything. It was about the Flash. It was about a story centered around a guy who had been troubled all of his life about a choice that he could not make, and that was to go back. And if you know the story of the, the origin story of the Flash, his mom was killed, his dad was framed for it, his dad eventually died in prison. Flashpoint is a story that starts out with him waking up without his powers, without being married to... Iris West and his mom is alive and you wonder what's going on. Uh, Batman is not Bruce Wayne, but his dad, Thomas Wayne, the, uh, you know, Wonder Woman and Aquaman pretty much occupied the entire planet earth. And so this alternate storyline does more than just say, Hey, what if, which I'm a big fan of, I loved Marvel comics. And when they did their whole, what if series, I thought that was fantastic, but it did a multitude of things that not only, gave us a what if story, but it also just gave us this, this character of, of Barry Allen and just in the six issue series allowed us to feel this pain with him, this frustration, this, um, regret all throughout the, the pages of this, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful event. And of course the repercussions of that were the new 52 that came around and so, yes, it did, in essence, kind of reboot <laughs> the DC universe in a way, shape, or form, but it did it with purpose. It didn't do it because people were saying, man, DC's messed up. We need to fix it. <laughs> it was saying, this is the next evolution of the world of DC Comics. And for me, as a big fan of The Flash, and particularly Barry Allen, reading this story and being excited about what the DCEU potentially could do with uh, with Ezra Miller as the Flash in the big screen really excites me. So I was really glad to read it. I was glad to get a chance to actually sit down with the comic, look at the pages, and just see the fantastic artwork. And uh, and I was I was just very very happy after I finished. I'm like that was just a really great read. It's very quick. It's like like I said, six issues, and uh, there's a bunch of tie-ins that. I don't know if I'll ever get around to reading, but there's one in particular for Superman that I'm definitely interested in based on what we what we saw of him in this uh, in this event story. So, yeah, nice. it's, it's really good. Cool. Yeah. I, those are the kind I could, you know, feasibly one day potentially get to being six issues. But for me, the likelihood is if I want to read some comics, I'm going to go back and catch back up with some Batman stuff, most likely. Sure. But I will say are, you introduced me to the Flashpoint animated film. And I watched that not having any idea about the source material at all. Uh, and I was mm -hmm. blown away by it. I absolutely loved it. So I highly recommend that as well, the animated feature version. But 
yeah, sounds like it works either way. If you read the comics first <laughs> and go to the animated or read or watch the animated and then go to the comics, which is pretty cool. Uh, that both It's a great adaptation. Can... Yeah, it's a yeah. very, 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 very good adaptation. Cool, man. Last thing before we start talking about the main film for this episode is that we want to thank our sponsors, the incredible listeners who support us on Patreon and make producing our shows possible. If you want to support us, you can check our Patreon at patreon.com slash feelinfilm, or we also take PayPal contributions, and there is a link to that on our website. We truly couldn't do what we do without the generosity of you amazing folks. Now, onward. All right. So as always, this is a spoilerific discussion. We leave nothing to chance. We leave nothing out. Well, I guess we leave some things out, but you're going to get the basic plot of this. And I, I wanted to give a little bit of backstory before we actually. I want to get your. I want to also get your your reaction because mm-hmm. I know this is a this is a recent uh, first watch for you apart from the the actual podcast. But I was looking doing some research on it, and originally I I was talking to my dad and he said yeah it was based on a play and I was like oh I didn't know that, and then it made sense to me to think oh yeah of course it's based on a play I mean it's twelve guys in a room talking you know how much could you. <laughs> Really, I mean, how do you how do you Makes take sense. that a little bit? But what I didn't realize is that play was actually based on a teleplay from a TV series. So it actually started out on the small screen, ended up going to the stage, and then eventually made its way to the big screen, which I thought was very interesting. And the fact that one, I want to see both of those adaptations. I want to see the play, and I want to see the, the actual like teleplay TV show episode of I can't remember what the TV show was. But I want to see the differences and what stayed and what went. And I was excited to get to talk about this with you because when when we initially were plotting out all this stuff, you hadn't seen it yet when we were initially scheduling. And then I remember you watched it, and the first thing you said to me was, we're putting this on the schedule. And I was like, sounds good to me. So tell me about that. Tell me about your initial experience with this movie, You know why you reacted the way you did. Well, I, like you, first, I, I will say that I, I too, enjoy this one enough that I would love to take in those other formats of the story. There's also another film adaptation that has some stellar actors from the 90s, I believe it is, mid-90s-ish, yeah. early 90s, that I would like to... I know to, Tony Danz is in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the cast is is phenomenal, and yeah. so for that reason, I'd like to check it out. I, I don't know how it could ever match up, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's a great story. Uh, and just to watch it being told in different manners with different character, different people playing those characters would be awesome. So this came onto my radar as part of my desire to kind of catch up with some classics that I have been approaching the last, I don't know, year and a half ish, two years of my life. I have a buddy named Todd, local friend, and he was starting out this year, we, we were picking movies for each other to watch, things that we had not seen. And so he would keep giving me classics. And one of the the nights that we decided to get together and watch some of these movies, we threw 12 Angry Men into the mix. It actually kind of got added on because it's so short, <laughs> which was a benefit in this, in this uh, manner because we had, like, we tried to get three movies in one night. So... I went over, we watched a couple movies, one of them being Psycho, and for comparison, I remember liking Psycho, 
and kind of nodding going, yeah, you know, I get why this was important when it was out and I understand why this is a classic and people consider it to be held in such high regard. The difference was 12 Angry Men gave me that incredible wow experience. I mean, and I'm talking like the wow of the wow. This was an instantaneous top 10 of all time movie for me after one viewing that it was that impactful for me. And so, yeah, that's why I immediately was like, yes, it's got to be on the schedule. (laughs) We've got to talk about it. I totally get why people love this film and why people think it is so good. Frankly, it's the, the screenplay above and beyond all else. I mean, you and I have talked about this on so many episodes. We are both suckers for a great screenplay. And this is Sorkin in the fifties. Uh, you know, that's what this is. And it's culturally relevant and a great moral lesson on top of that. It's acted so well, uh, you know, it's directed and shot just perfectly for being in an enclosed space, especially. So I, I loved it, man. And I was so glad that you were in love with it too. Cause I mean, I knew you liked it, but I didn't know you loved it. <laughs> and, and now, uh, now I know that. And, uh, yeah. So, so my first experience was awesome. My second experience did not leave anything else. It did not drop at all for me. It was equally as amazing the second time around. So didn't lose anything. Well, good. That's always nice that rewatchability makes, uh, makes it more valuable for you. I, would have to agree with pretty much everything you said. I think that the comparison to Sorkin of the fifties is pretty much spot on. I think we don't get the the snappiness of his, of his dialogue in this, but we get the importance of the dialogue and that it reminds me of the, of the film. I think, I think it was jobs. It was the one that, that released a couple of years ago and it was cool. I think it was quoted by me to a friend of mine is that was a really long conversation, you know, because it was all just dialogue <laughs> heavy. There was not a lot of quote action. And when you put stock in that, when you put a lot of faith in your, your dialogue, you are, you're taking a big risk, honestly, because then the weight is on your actors. The weight is on the way in which they deliver certain lines. The weight is on the story beats. I mean, this, this film was absent of action with the exception of maybe some struggles here and there with some of the jurors, this film was absent of, of music with the exception of the beginning and the end, at least from what I remembered. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film was absent of cinematography to an extent that you didn't have amazing, like wide shots. You know, when you mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, you talk about these just great cinematic shots that are worthy of the 70 millimeter. I mean, these were, these were just, these weren't, epic shots. These weren't epic. Uh, this wasn't an epic film, but all three of those things played their part in some way, shape or form. And they did it in different ways. The dialogue was the number one important thing. I think the blocking, and this is before, when I started thinking about this, this is before I realized that it was a play. I started using words like blocking. Well, those are key things in, in a play. How a, how a, a series of actors are positioned. Okay. I was going to um, ask they, you to explain that word. So, yeah, sorry. So blocking is a, it's used in film, but it's all, it's mainly used, uh, I, I've used it extensively in you know high school and college plays where it's how you position the actors in relationship to each other, in relationship to the stage. So if you have 
let's say Hamlet, he's doing his soliloquy. You're going to bring him uh, downstage or upstage. I can't remember. I think it's down. It's downstage. And he's going to be front and center where your other actors are going to be in the back. So he is visually more important than your other characters. And this this movie was ripe with that. Mm-hmm. The the way in which Lumet uses tight shots <laughs> to create that sense of claustrophobia. Oh, yeah. Uh, everything just feels like all these little pieces that come together feel incredibly intentional and thought out. Like even down to who goes into the bathroom and how long they stay there and the conversations in the bathroom. I mean, these are, these are things that remind me of, uh, <laughs> there's a scene in, in white Christmas where Bing Crosby and Danny Kay are, they're getting changed after they do a number and they're talking about looking at a, a new act or something, you know, and, and you know, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, Aaron. And it, it didn't dawn on me until the last few years of watching this during the holiday where I was like, man, look at all the stuff they're doing, you know, changing clothes and all these different things and moving back and forth towards each other. And the camera really never changes position. It's just watching them move around. Imagine having to like block that out as a, as a choreographer, as a stage manager or whatever. And you're like, not stage manager, that's bad. As a choreographer and you're in a director, you're going, okay, I'm going to need you here. And when you say this line, you need to make sure that you're done tying your tie because I'm going to need you to start doing this. I mean, all the little thoughts that go into that, I see echoed in a film like this because everything mattered. Every movement mattered, every, every shot, every pan, every zoom, all those things played into what we as, as an audience and you and I specifically have latched onto as one of the big themes of the movie. And it's really an examination of, you know, preconceptions and prejudices and, and judgment. I mean, this is, this is what the film is. That's where the life of this film lives and is in these ideas. And I wanted to take the next little bit and talk about those and how that is obviously very relevant to today's culture and the things that are talked about. So let's, let's kind of walk through this, um, from the very beginning, you know, we, we get this, this, this group of jurors and two of them are told, you know, they're excused. We get one shot, like one, three to four, maybe five second still of our quote, uh, victim, plaintiff, defendant, whatever, (laughs) uh, the accused. Yep. And then, the next shot we get is this really big kind of overarching shot of the jury room where these 12 men come in. And the first thing I thought of as they were going around the room, taking that initial um, guilty or not guilty, was everyone, and I mean everyone in this room has a motive. <laughs> that this this has gone beyond just what, uh, you know, we're not just trying to solve a case here or pick innocence and guilty at from the very beginning of introducing these guys, just the way in which they describe why they think this person's guilty says so much about themselves. Did you pick up on that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, from the very beginning, this film is riveting to me. Um, it, it, even in the way in which it just starts off right away. I mean, I, I picked up on that this time around the way that these movies were shot sometimes in the, in the fifties is such a, such a difference compared to 2017 where we spend a lot of time kind of getting into the story in this movie. 
the the title screens come up and the judge is explaining to the jury their res- responsibility. There's no backstory. There's no long explanation about what is going on. It's just right into the moment. There's no wasted time. And it's like, I think that that is part of what the goal was for this film. It, it enhances that claustrophobia. It, it, it kind of makes it feel like it's in real time. It's all happening in, in real time. Um, as if, you know, there's you know no gaps. And so, I love that about it and how it gets started. But yes, everybody clearly has a motive. And and some of those motives are very simple. I mean, many of them come out through the course of conversations and arguments, whether um, there are race race perceptions that, that come out. Um, I mean, some of the motives are, are much simpler. And there are, I want to go to a baseball game. You know, I, I don't want to be here. <laughs> I, I just want to get done. I don't really care what happens to this person. He's a human being one way or the other. I care about myself and I care about getting out of this room. And so I think that that's something that is captured very well because that's a realistic thing if you were in a jury or, and maybe the first thing we should do is make sure that we kind of think about this in terms of it doesn't have to be in a jury room. You know, this is, this is indicative of, any conversation with any group of people you could potentially have at any place in your life. <laughs> you could have conversations that weren't, you know, deciding the life or death of, of a suspect necessarily, but you could have these conversations around the water cooler and everyone is bringing a set of preconceptions, prejudices, and judgment to the table and a motive, right? So everyone has their reasons for engaging in a conversation uh, in the way that yeah. they do. Oh yeah, for sure. And what I loved about this was that first off, and this makes it, well, I guess it's easy for me since I can't remember character names at all, but they don't have them. <laughs> I know. Lumet. I mean, the only time we get any character names is at the very end when Fonda's character is talking to the older gentleman and he asks, you know, what's your name? And he says who he is. And he, the guy replies back and I still, I don't even remember their names because at the very end he's like, Okay, see ya. I'm like, what's that all about? But yeah, none of these characters have names. They're just referred to as their juror numbers, which was very intentional. And I think what Lumet does at the very beginning of this is he encourages through the uh, through the foreman, he says, why don't we sit by jury number? And so I think what it does is he he takes these characters and he says, look, we're not going to give them names. We're not going to we're going to we're going to let you we're going to let you examine them as an audience by their faces, by their mannerisms, by their dialogue, how they actually react to each other. We're going to we're going to take away as many preconceptions for you as an audience as possible beginning with their name. Because if you had a guy in there named uh Rodrigo or you had a guy in there uh with you know, with with a a very specific last name that was not white, <laughs> that was not his, you know, that hey, was, what's wrong with my last name? It's, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Occasion, my bad. <laughs> but if you had specific names, you would almost, uh, you would almost just taint a little bit of the ability to judge. See, what I think is interesting this time around for me was I felt like I was a jury that was making preconceptions about the jury. You know, I was one step further, and. By not giving them names, we kind of got a little bit of an advantage there because we didn't have, you know, we're we're discovering these things as they're telling us. So we're almost 
listening to their testimony and we're trying to make, okay, well, who's actually the guilty one here? Is it the, the guy on trial or is it these individuals? In particular, I, I latched on to, I believe it was juror one or two. He was, I call him the nerdy one. And I don't remember specifically, you know, but I remember when he was given, everybody was going around saying, after after Fonda's character, he's juror eight, right? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Fonda's juror eight and uh, Joe, I had their names in here, uh, Lee Cobb oh, Jr. Uh, Lee, Lee, he's juror, yeah. juror number three. Those are the two mains. So gotcha. three and yeah, eight. Yeah. Three is the villain. Eight is the hero. If you want to really, really okay. sum it up in a oh. black and white way. Okay. So 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 Fonda's character, Juror Eight, has just made his has just made his uh, kind of announcement. Hey, he's not guilty. And each person goes around. They're encouraged to say why. And there was something really interesting about Juror Two, the the nerdy one. They said, you know, why do you think he's guilty? And he goes. I just think I just think he is. And it got me thinking about something that oftentimes, particularly with the power of social media, as an example, we tend to latch on to the idea. And if we sort of agree with it, we tend to kind of latch on to the person who is articulating it in a way that makes sense to us or that we agree with. And while that's really good, I think it's good to have people that can articulate ideas and that we can support and be a part of that ideation. There is a danger that comes with that because then we kind of forget to lose, we forget to think for ourselves. And I think Jury 2 really creates a visual kind of uh, expression of that where he says, I just think he's guilty. You know, that's what all the evidence seemed to support it. But there was nothing specific about it. And as the movie went on, we we see him change his mind and i don't know if he says it specifically but i feel like i remember him saying all the evidence you know the things that people have brought up he has better like he, he's able to articulate why he believes the kid is innocent now you know this was said and this was said but he doesn't necessarily change completely and that he's like well here's why i think this but he really represents that that person who just kind of goes along with the crowd and I thought that was really interesting because it was one of probably five or six different motives within mm-hmm. the within the room, you know? Yeah, the 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 thing that I noticed actually was another another thing that another way in which that was shown in a physical manner or visual manage, manner is when that first vote is called for, several of them don't raise their hand until they see what the majority is doing. So when he first calls mm-hmm. for the vote, you'll see a, you see several hands shoot up and you see eyes looking around the room and then oh, okay, looks like this is going to be the majority. So I want to I want to be on this side. This must be the right way for me to this must be the thing I should think and it's it's very much that groupthink mentality of well, okay, this is clearly what everybody else believes, so so I must it must be correct, uh, and therefore I, right. I should I should be part of this, um, right? And I think that's what I think this happens in our lives all the time, and you know we are in an incredibly incredibly uh, tense time in our nation's history, um, as far as the the racial tensions that we have going on in this country, um, whether mm-hmm. they're higher or not. I am not able to say that. I am not a historian, but what I can say is that the 
the existence of social media, the existence of the news, and the, the, the way in which information can spread fast and incorrect information also can spread fast helps to create this environment that we are in where this happens all the time and people mm-hmm. latch on. I mean, it happens in, in media and film too, not just uh, in in real life. Or not, I guess that's real life, but not in, in serious <laughs> things. But, you know, one tweet goes out that says, Batman's not going to be part of the DCEU universe. And it's an actual legitimate quote. And everyone agrees. And, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm on board with that. I'm not going to think. I'm not going to research. I'm not going to use logic. I'm just going to agree with the majority. Um, mm-hmm. or, or the movie was awful because, you know, the five out of ten people raised their hand, so I'm going to raise my hand and say that was awful as well, mm-hmm. rather than be what Juror 8 gives us, which is the contrarian. Juror <laughs> 8 is the, the film version of Andrew Dice, <laughs> or what we try <laughs> to be um, a lot of times, which is being able to say, I don't know yet. You know, I haven't, I, I'm not willing to, to jump on that, on that platform and make that decision right. with that group of people because I don't know if I truly identify with them yet or not. Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've, you've just said three words that I think are magical that don't get used a lot in life in culture in or, life. Yeah. In life. And it was brought to light with Henry Fonda's character. First of all, I think it's fantastic that as a character, he he did two things in his initial, I guess you could call it his initial monologue or his initial speech or dialogue. One is that he his opinion didn't begin with, this is why I think he's not guilty. His opinion began with the words, basically, I don't know. In fact, he, he begins the whole film by saying, I'm not saying he's not guilty. I just want to talk about it. Those words, I just want to talk about it. (laughs) Those need to be said so much more when it comes to conversations about things that we are dealing with in our culture, when it comes to racial differences, when it comes to misunderstanding the people around us. And I'm not going to get on a preaching train here. I don't want to do that. But I will say that this film, I think it stands up in today's world. Like it it makes its own... uh, What's the words I'm trying to come up with? He, it's, it, it's relevant today mm-hmm. because of lines like that. I just want to talk about it because in that moment, what he does is he do, he admits to, he he does two things. He admits he doesn't know, which I think is okay to say that. I think it's okay to say, I'm ignorant of this. I don't understand the cultural influences that exist around me. I don't understand why this person gets treated differently than me, and I want to know. And he follows it up by saying, I just want to talk about it because he he continuously the first half of the film or at least the first third, he's going, maybe he's guilty. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out. In fact, there's this great moment in the bathroom where he is being confronted and he's basically told, hey, what about this situation? What if you convince us all that he's not guilty and he's actually the murderer? And he goes, yeah that you know it's (laughs) that could happen but what he's basically doing in this whole film is he's saying i really want us to do one i want to do us to do our job as as a jury and talk about this thing because this is a boy's life we're talking about he does and and the screenplay just accentuates that 
over and over and over throughout the film. There are constant little moments of dialogue that continually reinforce that, that same theme of being sure and, and figuring things out or making sure it's valid. There's, there's a great point where they're, they're arguing and, and talking about, I don't remember which specific example of that they're working their way through. It might've been uh, when Jura 8 is, is doing the old man dragging his leg through the walking distance. And one of them yells out and says, nobody can be that accurate when they're trying to, to figure things out. And he says, somebody says, well, I think that evidence that'll put a man in the electric chair should be that accurate. And I mean, gosh, this is, this is in the 1950s. Here we are. Um, and this is a film that could easily, that same concept could be applied today. Are we doing our due diligence when we, you know, execute people using the death penalty? There's mm-hmm. been examples of it not working. Right. And right. there are going to be examples of it or where I'm sorry, by not working, meaning it has been discovered after the fact that someone was not necessarily guilty and that they were executed. And I'm sure mm-hmm. as juror number eight admits, it can it can go the other way, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, a great example of this that I would say is the recent podcast from a few years ago, the first run of serial. Did you listen to it? I listened to maybe uh, about four or five episodes. It didn't really pique my interest, but okay. I mean, it was I was well, it, I was on the group think train. And I was like, "You need to watch. You need to listen to this. It's amazing." But, but so you I, got I off. That's it. okay. So it did. <laughs> so the point of this whole investigation was it was an investigation into this man named Adnan Saeed who was found guilty of killing his girlfriend, right? And it was an investigation into could this act, could things actually have happened the way that the prosecution says they could. And was he guilty? And so here we are trying to disprove or not necessarily trying to disprove, but trying to evaluate whether or not it is accurate enough to be willing to put someone to death over. And and that is exactly what that investigation was about. It was not ever about proving Adnan's innocence. And that's not the results that we came to it was not a, Hey, he's innocent or hey, he's guilty. In fact, even after the investigation concluded, the results were inconclusive, (laughs) you know, but they left a lot of doubt. They brought up a lot of doubt, just like we see in 12 Angry Men. Yeah. And reasonable doubt is a word that shows up not only in any courtroom drama or any courtroom period, but it's one that has a significant impact on the back half of the film. And that's really what Jure is trying to get to. He's not trying to prove himself to be right. All of the bases are covered that as they talk this stuff out, that they really do examine things closely because things could be missed. I mean, they even make, he even makes a point, and I think several jurors make a point that the, I think it was a court appointed lawyer that was defending the kid, and maybe he didn't want the case. Maybe this. The word maybe comes up so many times in this movie. And that that word can be so powerful because it leaves room for speculation. Sometimes it's good to speculate, but sometimes it's not. And throughout the course of this story, the word maybe is is used and it's done and, and it works in a powerfully positive way in terms of giving the kid's story, um, you know, basically punching holes in the prosecution. But so... In that case, it's, it's a very cool little courtroom drama, 
But at the same time, when we talk about the perceptions and the, the misconceptions and the prejudices and all that stuff from the jury's point of view, is it even starts to punch holes in, in their stories, in their pre- preconceptions. Because as they start talking through it, they start getting more exposed to us. And so we start seeing through them that maybe this kid, you know, just like they say, maybe this kid isn't really, you know, all that bad. That just because he comes from the slums, that doesn't make him a bad kid. Maybe he just, he grew up getting slapped around. And so all this other stuff was just sort of thrown on him. And as they're breaking that down, as an audience, we're looking at each one of these guys and we're starting to have a little sympathy for him, particularly juror three, you know, when he starts talking about his son mm-hmm. and how his son has made such an impact on how he views the world, that broken relationship. Uh, juror number 10, nine. Dad, don't, know. I can't remember. You dad, don't. Whichever one, the one, the, the one who, who is, you know, he's very much prejudiced and says these kids, kids That's these 10. days, you know, blah, blah, blah. 10. Yeah. You know, we, we get, we get some sympathy for him at some point in the film. And so in a way, you know, Lumet's asking us to examine, he's asking us to, to, to say maybe, and I don't know, because we're actually brought in with these individuals at the very beginning. And we've made our, you know, we've made our own opinions about them, but they change. My opinion is my opinion changes concerning some of these guys over time. Uh, some for the better, some for the worse. But I think that when you can when you can open up dialogue the way that, that Juror 8 does, and he says, I just want to talk about it, and maybe it could be this way, maybe not, and you, you use that powerful tool of reasonable doubt, suddenly it, it really just kind of opens up this idea that nothing's 100%, but maybe it's enough to to change someone's mind. Right, and that's and of course that's what they're doing on and on as it goes, you know, with juror three being resistant over and over and over using all of these different, and he, he, juror three goes through all these different types of evidence, you know, well, this is Mm -hmm. the reason he's guilty. Well, we're going to just prove that now. (laughs) Okay. We did it. We Mm -hmm. did a little role play and we showed you that that's not true. Well, that's okay. He said he would, he was going to kill him. And I, and I love the way in which one by one, they work through juror three's, arguments mm-hmm. and and the and the rest of the doubters or the ones that that want to consider him guilty because of say one random piece of evidence and they work through this and then one of the the great scenes in the film to me is when um juror three has been talking about his son previously mm-hmm. and juror eight um calls him a sadist like he, he's been so patient and so calm but at one point he gets angry and he's like he calls him a sadist and he tells him he said you just you just want to see the boy die because of yourself mm-hmm. not because of the facts yeah. and then that's when juror three kind of attacks him and says i'll kill him right and in that moment like you don't need you don't need an exposition this is be- the beauty of the screenplay and the direction and the way that the, sh- the shots are done uh up close you don't need someone to have a speech to explain what is taking place in that moment, you see it on every single person's face in the room, and you know in inside of you what is exact what has just taken place. Which is, juror three has just proven his own another yet another one of his preconceptions completely wrong. That mm-hmm. saying "I'll kill you" truly means "I'll kill you," and calmly, juror eight just re- re- reiterates that and says, "You don't mean that. 
you, you just said that's just a phrase of speech, just like it could have been yeah. for the boy. And so one of the things I really take out of this as far as cultural relevance today is this is a good example of how to talk sometimes to people that you disagree with, because this is, this is a big issue right now in the country. There are two sides that are way far apart when it comes to many, many issues and they don't know how to talk to each other. Um, I saw something online after the tragedy in uh, Charlottesville and it was a, a group of, of Black Lives Matters uh, folks and a group of Confederate something. I don't know. They were, they were pro-Confederate keeping up the statues. And they were on stage together, and they were both giving a speech. And he, one of the guys mentions, he says, we talked to each other. He said, we sat down over beer and talked. He said, I don't agree with him. I don't think he's right. And he doesn't think I'm right. And we wholeheartedly disagree with each other. But we're trying to understand why each other feels the way they do without being combative and without hating each other for not thinking the way we do. And I think that this film does a great job of showing how you can talk, talk through things and how it's also it's not always going to be roses. It can be messy. And it can be hard. I mean, my goodness, that final shot in this movie shows you how hard it can be when you get to that breaking point, right? With Juror 3. But it can be done, you know, if if we commit to not latching out at each other and putting a knife to each other's throats and instead letting ourselves listen and take the time to, to work through things. When the end goal is understanding and not being right... There's something pretty amazing that happens there. And Juror 8 does something that I don't think many others in the room do, and that's stay calm while making a definitive defense about his position. And there's something pretty powerful about this idea of nonviolence or pacifism or whatever you want to call it, but this notion of having dialogue with people without losing your cool and without losing control of of who you are because it establishes a sense of not you trying to project that you're right but really your the strength in you that says I really do want to understand where you're coming from this movie reminds me that everybody in my life has a worldview they have a way in which they see the world and a reason why they see the world that way to several people that I'm around. We share the same worldview in, in certain, in certain ways, whether it's, whether it's spiritual or biological or whatever, but in a lot of ways, even within those groups, I, I find that the way in which I think about something and why I think about that is different. And so rather than me trying to project my I'm right and this is why or my way is the best way and this is why and this is why I really try to open up a dialogue that says I'm not really understanding why it is that you feel the way you do and I'd like to understand that. And those are difficult conversations to have because they can come across as 
um, as as very much like uh, I don't know what the word is, but they can come across as very patronizing. Mm-hmm. They can come across as very insincere. And I think it's because those types of conversations don't happen on a normal basis. If you've got somebody that's very combative and you come back and you say, hey, not really understanding why you're feeling like this. Can we sit down and talk? I mean, <laughs> imagine some imagine that happening. And of course, you know, you described it with this this moment in Charlottesville. It can happen. It's incredibly hard to do that, but it takes being able to stand against the the crowd even if you don't feel like what you're saying it, or what you believe is true at least having the uh, having the the strength to be able to say I want to talk about it to to make sure that the decision or the way in which we feel the way in which you feel makes sense to me and that it's okay to end the conversation by saying I don't agree with that I don't agree with you and you don't agree with me but I now understand where you're coming from because that leads to more conversations. And maybe, maybe at some point down the line, it can lead to a sense of a unified thought about something or a unified idea. I'd like to believe that some of that existed at the end of the film, that these guys started thinking the same for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And by the right reasons, I mean not because they wanted to go to a ball game or because they just that's just what other people were saying. Right. But they really all went through this thing together. They examined it. And they all had some confidence to say, yeah, I really do believe that. The evidence supports that. Yeah. And I'm going to give him reasonable doubt and say not guilty. And, and you hope that they would take it with them outside the courtroom, right? That it's not just a oh, yeah. one-time event, that it changes their lives as far as mm-hmm. how they approach things. I mean, I, I don't know about all of them, but I feel that Juror 3 has, you know, that life-changing moment. He's... That's why I love that scene so much of him him breaking down at the end. He's just completely wrecked, and he's arguing and arguing and arguing and screaming, and then he just stops and says, you know, crying into his arms, says, not guilty. And kind of to wrap up that part of the conversation, I think it, it's just it's such an awesome example of, I don't even know if forgiveness is right the right word here, Maybe, to some extent. But Juror 8 walking over to him and helping him put his coat on when mm, he's crying. Yeah. That really, really gets me. Because these are the two men that have been going at it. And and this is this is the humbleness to say, I never saw you as my enemy. Like, I never saw you as, you know, an evil person. I saw you as someone who needed to get to a point where you could think through this on your own. And, and see exactly. things differently. And... Now we've gone through this battle and I'm going to help you up my friend. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, so there was something very powerful about that shot to me. And I, and I don't think the film would be the same without it. And it's just kind of like the one with him asking uh, the other guy asking the juror's name. I thought that was a a great addition just to again, highlight the fact that there at the end that we had gone through this whole process and they never did care about each other's names, you know, and now, Mm -hmm there's this brief moment of maybe we have relationships. Maybe we have actually gone through this big ordeal together and there is a relationship that's formed and you just never know. Um, right. There, a couple of quick things on the technic technical aspects of this that I wanted to point out. The use of the heat and how it serves as a ramping up of the tension in the room is 
brilliant. <laughs> and conversely, when it starts to rain, again, is the opposite effect is applied where it sort of at that moment brings a necessary and needed calm to the room after a very high heated moment that has just taken place. There's a couple of characters going over and they have to try and close the window, right? And you just, you can hear the rain for like almost the rest of the movie. It's, it's amazing. I love it. It's just going on in the background. Like it's realistic, right? It's raining. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that level of detail uh, and how that affects the moods that we see there. And I think, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, that Lumet is, is really great at being able to attach those little things to the psychological, um, stability or instability of the, of these guys, because, uh, as much as I joke about, about you guys in Seattle, not getting nearly the heat that we do, the heat and being uncomfortable in the summertime, it it changes your attitudes. It changes how irritable or how you know irritable you can be. I tend to get more irritable if my house is not air conditioned at night in the summertime because I'm like, Ugh, you know. And I think it's great that Lumet uses weather, that he uses temperature and things like that to to both elevate and and bring back that tension and it it supports it in just a just a really great way so that's a great point yeah and then the other thing I, I was reading up a little bit about him and you know he's he's really he's known for this film he's got other films uh, that he's known for dog day afternoon network which is on my list of must see movies again supposedly one of the best scripts ever written screenplays ever written so I guess he he's attracted to that uh, Serpico, another another very well known or or you know classic type film, and then The Wiz. Did you know he directed The Wiz? Talk about know. left field. <laughs> when I saw that, I was like, wait a second. And I actually went to look to see like this is not that The Wiz, right? Nope, it was. Um, <laughs> I was reading this thing about him, and I just thought this was so spot on. So I'm just gonna real quickly read it. According to film historian uh, Bowles. Lumet succeeded in becoming a leading drama filmmaker partly because, quote, his most important criterion when directing is not whether the actions of his protagonists are right or wrong, but whether their actions are genuine. And where those actions are justified by the individual's conscience, this gives his heroes uncommon strength and courage to endure the pressures, abuses, and injustices of others. His films have thereby continually given us the quintessential hero acting in defiance of peer group authority and asserting his own code of moral values. If I mean, and that is an absolute perfect description of 12 Angry Men. So if the rest of his films have heroes and characters that, that you know, exhibit this type of trait, oh man, I am so excited to go explore some more of his filmography after knowing that. He's a, a genius. <laughs> I don't want to say genius. That's that's just but that quote makes me think that here's a director that cares about his characters. And that that line not that his actions of his protagonists are right or wrong, but that they are genuine. I mean the idea of honesty in this in this movie 
really becomes apparent as the film progresses. Because as we see people break out of their stereotypical roles or whatever it is that we initially see them in, we see more honesty. In particular, those two, those two combatants, Juror 3 and, and Juror 8, we see that honesty of each one of them just break out. We see them saying, look, this is what I know. This is who I've been. This is who I, I've grown to be. And being able to be genuine with that gives us real genuine empathy for them. And I love the fact that we talk about characters in movies and how they sometimes feel like stereotypes. They feel like tropes and how we want more. What is it we want more of? We want either characters that break that mold or characters that uh, grow from that into something more genuine Mm -hmm. because we want characters that we can relate to. You know, I'm not an old man yet. Um, I'm not someone from the fifties who, you know, wears a, a polo with a tie, you know, like our, our esteemed foreman. I thought that was hilarious. I'm, I'm not a guy who sells marmalade for $20,000 a year or whatever, but I connect with each one of those guys in some way because of some things that they said. I connected with, with juror two when he said, I just, you know, I just going along with the crowd and it convicted me. It made me say, look, if I feel a certain way, I need to know why I need to understand why I feel that way. And be able to back that up, not so I can say I'm right, but so I can have an honest conversation about someone who may or may not agree with me. Um, I, I've had, I've had the thoughts that that juror, juror three has had about those people. Mm-hmm. You know, when I and and I hate myself for that. I hate having those thoughts, but I have to be honest about the fact that I've had prejudices in the past, and it takes being around different people that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, don't act like me, to understand that the world is not a bunch of me's. It's not this homogenous, patch-filled world. It has to be, and it is, a lot more than that, and it's better for it. So I think as I, as I walk through each one of these characters, I think, yep, I connect with you here. I connect with, um, I guess it's juror six who is just ready to get to the ball game. You know, there are times when I just don't want to care about people's problems. Yep. I'm like, all right. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Here's a hurricane. Okay, cool. What's, what else is going on here? You know, I I find myself doing that. Like I I gave a sad like on it. You know, I made I put a little sad, sad face. I mean, I've done my, I've done my part. Right. That's that's what we do. Yeah. For me, this film is very convicting because it just reminds me that I'm continuously having to learn and grow and be not just a better person, but to be a person that's approachable, be a person that's worth having a dialogue with and a person that needs to have a worldview that can be talked about with somebody else that may not. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it, it, it's a very moving film. It's a very convicting film. It's also a very entertaining film. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the more entertaining qualities that that I found very, very cool. First of all, we've mentioned the blocking and, and the shots and and just the the use of all the technical stuff. But I love some of the relationships with with these guys. I, I particularly gravitated towards Juror Twelve, the guy in advertising. Like that would be me. If I'm in that room, <laughs> I'm that guy who's just who's just like 
making light of things like, yeah, let's uh, let's throw something on the ground and see if the cat licks it up. <laughs> yeah, the stoop then, on the stoop. The, the, I, I was gonna sorry. bring that line up because I love it okay. so much. Let's throw it out on the stoop and see if the cat licks it up. And I cat love that the guy next to him is like, "What? Like, what, what are you saying?" <laughs> I want his glasses too. I think he's great. <laughs> well, and and that's and that moment is so great because it's we talk about it all the time. It's mm-hmm. levity, levity in a horror yeah. movie, levity in a tense thriller. It's it comes directly after that big blow up between juror eight and three, right? Right, and so the room's kind of like somebody in that room needs to be the comedian and calm <laughs> calm people down and and make people laugh a little. And so that that moment is fantastic. Yeah, Jur. Another moment was that uh, with Jur four, <laughs> and he's uh, he's sitting next to to Jur five, who I think is played by uh, who is it, Jack Klugman, and Jack Klugman's looking at him like he's holding his collar, and he goes, "Don't you ever sweat?" <laughs> and he goes, "No, I don't." I mean, he's just this. <laughs> it's just this this dry sense of just no i don't sweat and i love that later on you actually see him sweat a little bit because he's you know gotten but I, just these little lines um even i think it's uh i want to say it's jack uh jack warden who plays juror six who wants to get to the game his i think what he does is he's just a loud mouth and in those types of things he provides a level of of humor that you know we we don't get with these other ones. I mean, yes, we get our advertising guy who's really funny, but I think Jack I think Jack Warden's character is just he's that impatient, like, uh, can we just get out of here? And like even like the the moment that I love with him the most is when the when the light after the after the rain happened the starts and they turn the light on and the fan starts. He's like, Hey, would you look at that? It's like and he and he sits back and then he goes, okay, obviously nobody cares. And so he's just kind of hanging. <laughs> but it's like he's discovered like life on Mars or something when he does that. But they're just really great moments of lightheartedness that are needed in a film like this. And I thought those guys were great. Yeah, I agree. And I'm glad that you point that out because it is is definitely more than just the social justice or social and racial aspects of this film that are that are brought up and the the, the exploration of prejudice and preconceptions and things like that. Um, That's why it's a classic. That's why it is elevated to such heights and to such a, a a standard that many films don't ever reach. Most films don't ever reach is because of the balance and the ability to combine all of those things into one. And the fact that, that he did this and it was his first ever, it's just mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just so, so, so incredible. Yeah. And a film like this that has so many important themes that still resonate today have to have that kind of levity because they make the film approachable. I think you and I, we, we mentioned that the things we dislike about films are when they start preaching to you, when they start kind of telling you what, what to think and what to feel and what to think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of giving you the opportunity to make that choice for yourself. And just like these guys had a choice to make throughout the film, um, we had a choice to make at the end by deciding for ourselves what kind of people these these guys were. And the interesting thing is that at the very beginning, when you, it was eleven to one, you know, he had to kind of prove or start dialogue on why that wasn't the case. And by the end, what I thought was great is that I felt like everyone in that room 
were unified for the right reasons. I felt like they had, because of that exploration that we've talked about, because of just walking through that stuff, I felt like they weren't just going along with it. Like they felt empathy for each other in some way, Mm -hmm. shape or form. You know, young guys feeling empathy for older people and older people feeling empathy for younger people and all these different things. Having that experience and having that growth, it didn't feel like they were just going along with the crowd. You know, that it definitely didn't feel like juror three was just reluctantly saying not guilty. I think he genuinely meant that. And I'm glad that we got that. I'm and, glad that it wasn't just it wasn't just about one guy proving and getting eleven other guys to agree with him. It was about all of them eventually agreeing. Right. And 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 at all different levels. At all different levels of agreeance. So not everyone agrees to the extent of juror eight. Right. You know what I mean? Like juror three's agreeance of not guilty is maybe not nearly as concrete or strong Mm -hmm. as maybe juror five or six or whatever. Some of them may actually now fully believe he's, he didn't do it to, you know, that the evidence is very, very clear that he did not commit the murder. Others may just believe that the evidence is not enough to convict. Right. So they're not, they're not necessarily all on the same spectrum, but they're all to a decision for the right reasons, like you said. And I, I, I do. I right. just think it's, it's phenomenal. It's one I can watch over and over and over again, Patrick. I love the length. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's darn near a perfect film or it is a perfect film to me. I don't want to say darn near. <laughs> it's in my top five of all time. It is a perfect film to me. It is wonderful and I adore it. Well, fantastic. I'm glad that you feel that way. And, uh, you know, it connects on a number of different levels for us. And uh, as we as we move into our connecting point, I, I wanted to really highlight a couple of moments that stood out to me that really became my connecting point. There were a lot of things that I loved about this film. There were a lot of things that, that I connected with. I mentioned earlier that just how it made me feel convicted in a number of ways. But there's the uh, there are these two moments that were kind of right next door to each other. And the first being the rant by juror 10 and he's essentially preaching from a perspective of preconceived notions about this kid, where he comes from, what his motives are in relationship to himself and and other jurors. And as he's ranting on and on, this is where the power of blocking (laughs) and where stage acting really makes, uh, makes a resonant, like just a huge impact. Each juror begins to distance themselves from him. And I absolutely loved the blocking in this moment because by the end of his rant, no one, and I mean no one, is near him or looking at him or acknowledging him. It's like this silent protest, right? And even the camera work reinforces this by zooming out. It's just a slow pan out where it starts with him and the camera just moves out. And he goes on. It feels like he goes on for five minutes. I think it's like a minute and a half maybe. And so as he's talking – you see more people getting up, moving towards, you know, looking out towards the window, uh, looking away at the closet or whatever. And then it's like in this moment, each juror is coming to grips with their own preconceived notions and opinions. Like it's like they're seeing themselves through him and his rant and they're kind of examining themselves and they're maybe feeling guilt or conviction or, or even embarrassment. And visually, I, I love the wide shot of everyone scattered. Like I, I, I want to just take that shot and like print it because I think it speaks volumes. I think it speaks to the whole idea about the film. This without understanding in a world of ignorance, 
people are divided. People are just apart. They are not together on this. And then you couple that with the next moment with, uh, with juror eight. And it's almost the complete opposite. There's a slow zoom in. There are tighter shots. Everyone coming back to their seats. And there's a sense of almost unification. And, and I believe that this is the pivotal moment when people begin to feel that conviction for their vote. It's not just, oh, person A believes this, and they say not guilty. I want to get out of here, so I'm going to say not guilty too. It's not out of peer pressure or ignorance. It's really out of genuine, even if there is some stuff here that could convict this kid, I believe beyond a reasonable doubt that he didn't do it for whatever reason, you know, my personal opinion or whatever. And when I see those two put together, I think here – if you, if you don't see, well, I'm saying watch the whole movie because these scenes wouldn't make sense without it. But I would say if you're going to package this movie up and the ideals and everything about it, it's in these two moments. Yep. I, you know, I'm not even going to attempt to come up with something other than that because that is easily my most uh, connected moment as well um, is that entire scene of the, the rant, the racist rant by Joe Ten, And what... What captures me so much in this is one of the things that has happened for my personal life recently with regards to racism and and how I I go about approaching this conversation um, in 2017. Films like Get Out really helped me to start kind of exploring that, honestly. And one of the things I've noticed is how, how many jokes happen, whether... Uh, about whether it's race or sex or or any anything it could be any type of um, ethnicity or origin and uh, we people around us say these things kind of flippantly and they don't really think about them and I feel like this is that moment where everyone in the room kind of is willing a lot of times to throw those things out there and they're just let let little things slide you know, oh, he's he's just a ghetto kid and things like that, you know, to, to stereotype. But then you have someone that starts actually speaking it as truth or what is truth to them, and it's no longer a joke. And so people kind of start to stand up against that. And I think this exemplifies the type of protest that I believe in. We see the news media constantly promoting I say promoting constantly showing us violent protesting protesting where people are screaming at each other they're hateful towards one another they're having to be dispersed by police officers there's tear gas and things of that nature these men are simply saying you know what I'm not going to listen to you I'm not going to be party to this I'm not going to have my ears marred by what you're saying i'm gonna just stand here and ignore you until you go away or until you realize that no one here wants to be on your team (laughs) and i i love the effectiveness of this not only the importance of how it is portrayed and i think relevance to today's world and something we could all take take a piece out of this and, and and apply in our lives but the way it's shot you know, we talked about these the the blocking. I'm going to use that word because I learned it today, and I I, I called it framing, but blocking works. Um, the way <laughs> the that you know, know the room the 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 tracking shot comes out the camera, mm-hmm. and we start to slowly see, and they don't all stand still. I mean, it is a it is one of my favorite scenes of, in all of film, 
this moment right here. And at one point, Juror 10 says during this whole thing, or I'm sorry, Juror 8, he says, it's always difficult to keep personal prejudice out of a thing like this. And wherever mm. you run into it, prejudice always obscures the truth. Yeah. Right. And that's what he says about Juror 10. Um, mm-hmm. So he never, he also never fully damns him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He doesn't say it's okay, but he 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 understands, mm-hmm. and it's like just another thing we need to get through. Like this is another person that needs to be able to listen. Um, and then the last thing about this scene that I really love is at the end, where ultimately somebody does vocally kind of smack the raises down, and <laughs> Juror Ten is like, "Listen to me," and Juror Four says, "I have." Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. And it's like he finally speaks what Whoa, yeah. their actions have shown. And it's just, it's a mic drop moment, really. Yeah. And to see someone put in their place, and you can see it all over the face, right, of, mm-hmm. of Juror 10. You can see it it, it affecting him and, and him having to wrestle with that internally and think about what he has been, what he's just seen. Gosh, I, I just, I love it. And I want that for everybody, you know. That, that these these are the kind of ways in which we could have conversations and deal with our problems instead of violence and hate and anger and and wishing somebody different than us didn't exist, you know, that we would we would go through this hard work together um, and come out all better for it. So, so same same well, connecting I, point. Great. And I'm 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 really glad that you brought up those two moments with uh, juror eight and then juror four, because the reactions to to juror 10 are two different approaches, right? Uh, I, I love that juror eight in, in, in our faith and uh, in, in one of the buzzwords that we use is called correction, which is not an uncommon word, but a lot of times when we talk about other believers, we talk about being able to offer up correction to each other when one of us is kind of going astray or doing something that maybe they shouldn't be doing. And so Juror eight actually has that authority and that line of dialogue that it's always difficult to keep personal prejudice out of a thing like this. And whenever you run into it, prejudice always obscures the truth. He's not, I mean, he's talking to him. He's saying that, yep, this applies to you, but he's doing it in a way that at this point in the film, he's very empowered by that. Like he is one who has the, he has the right to speak into the life of juror eight because juror eight's basically opened himself up to that. And then you have someone else like juror or juror four that says, sit down and don't open your mouth again. I mean, you have these two distinctly different, but appropriate responses Mm -hmm. to what this guy's just done. And that sometimes it's okay to speak truth into a person's life and to say, this is what you need to hear. It's important. You're, you're loved and you're cared for, but this is the truth. And then sometimes you need to just say, sit down and don't open your mouth again. You're screwing up. Stop. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think, but I think that the way in which it takes place is so important because they Mm -hmm. show him first with their actions. They show him quietly. They ignore Mm -hmm. him and then they use the harsh words. And at that point, I feel like juror 10 has experienced enough that he's able to listen to that because he does, he sits down and he shuts up. If they had led with that, I don't believe the same response would have occurred. Does exactly. That make sense? Yeah. 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 And, and for him, it wasn't that someone was pissed at him and said, shut up and don't open your mouth again. They were saying, look, you've said enough. Don't say anything else. 
And at that point, combined with uh, with Fonda's character, he feels that conviction. He feels that you're right. I've said everything I need to, and I see what that has done, and I'm going to be quiet now. So it's, I mean, he's received it. It's, it's, yeah, it's not insulting necessarily. It's just I, I the visual of those two, those two approaches, they do the same thing to him because he's ready to hear those things. Yeah. Well, Patrick, have we said everything that we need to say? <laughs> <laughs> we never do, man. I don't think we ever like give a movie justice. But if you guys want to continue the conversation, which we'd love for you to, you can find this hanging out in the Facebook group. That's where all the magic happens in terms of discussion. And we'd love to know if you guys have seen this. And if you have, what's your connecting point? If you have a different one or if you have the same one, we'd love to hear you expand and see if you have any different thoughts on that or much the same. And uh, we'd like to think that the Facebook group is sort of an extension of what this movie is <laughs> is really trying to articulate. And that's good discuss- good discussion without uh, ripping through and, and insulting each other and just having... So uh, very great- true. And it, yeah, and it, and it so. can get heated sometimes, but, you know, people's opinions can change and, and I've seen it happen. And yeah, that's a, that's a great comparison. And, and that's very true about it's a place that we, we like to see that happen from a film criticism and conversation standpoint. So it's, it's yeah. a great place for that. Yeah. So if you want to continue the discussion there, you can, you can do that. Or if you want to talk to me specifically, you can find me uh, at the big three uh, at shoeless patch, S H O E L E S S P A T C H. Uh, you can find uh, more about me through those social media links along with my website, thisispatch.com. Or if you're new to the show and uh, you want to to find out more about the show itself, you can just check us out at feelinfilm.com. We've got all of our past episodes, mini-sodes, other sodes, anything that's a sode, along with some good writing from our contributors, Don and Jeremy and Steve. They've got some good stuff happening there as well. Um, Next week kicks off our book to movies month yes everybody's going back to school and so are we we're going to be covering movies that have been adapted from books that people have maybe they've seen maybe they haven't and we're going to kick off with uh one that you mentioned last week that i'm excited to talk about and that's jurassic park so be sure to come back and join us for that discussion yes and those big three that patrick is referring to are twitter facebook and instagram apologies got, yes it, I, it's sorry. okay i guess i just want to clarify I do every week <laughs> Just want to clarify. Uh, as for me, space or anything. my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are also all of the same. They're not shoeless patch. They are at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, and I love to talk all day to anybody and everybody, so you can come feel free to converse with me as well. The other thing I want to mention is we did just recently launch another show under our banner. I am co-hosting that with a couple of friends of mine, Blaine and Shannon. And it is called Tabletop Flicks. What we do is we compare a movie and a board game or movies and board games that have a similar theme. And we discuss how those would pair well for an evening of entertainment. Uh, it's, it's a great bit of fun. And we've had a lot of a, a lot of enjoyment already with the first several episodes. Last week we talked about dinosaurs, as Patrick mentioned, uh, pairing Jurassic Park with several of our favorite board games. And this next episode that will be coming out uh, next week is going to be on the Arabian Nights, which is really, really cool. I am pumped to find out what kind of games uh, Blaine and Shannon are bringing to the table. I myself have watched a couple of classic movies that I'm going to squeeze in there and I think are really going to thematically fit well with the board game that I've been playing lately. So 
subscribe to that today. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and everywhere you can find Feel and Film. You can also find Tabletop Flicks. We'd love to have you check out both shows. But that is all yep. I got for now, Patrick. Uh, I'm excited about next week and Books to Movies Month. I can tell you that. It's going to be a lot of fun, man. So thank you guys for listening. Thanks for supporting the show any way, shape, or form that you can. And as we always say, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.